A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. So glad you're with me on the program today. Uh, We are guestless today just because I was unsure of whether my internet connection would allow me to actually have a guest with the uh, winter weather that uh, most of us are experiencing. Uh, Right now, it is just uh, some rain and some wind for us here in Central Virginia. Hopefully, uh, you managed to get through the uh, winter weather all right in your neck of the woods. So um, instead of a guest today, we're going to be talking about what's going on in Minnesota, where a new law has taken effect, the Extreme Risk Protection Order, or a red flag law, now in effect as of January the 1st, and there is already some misinformation going around. All the part of the media, the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, with a big editorial uh, praising the uh, new red flag law and encouraging the use of, of this new statute. They write, the new year started with news of the tragic shootings of two children in the Twin Cities when shots were fired into their homes. In Minneapolis, an 11-year-old girl was shot in the face while in her Northside bedroom. And in St. Paul, a 10-year-old boy was hit in the stomach by gunfire directed at his Frogtown area home. The editors of the Star Tribune write, it's impossible to know whether the red flag law that went into effect on January the 1st in Minnesota could have prevented that horror, but it might have made a difference in the Minneapolis case, editors say, where the suspect randomly fired an AR-15 rifle into the air to celebrate the new year. The accused is a friendly man who is a convicted felon barred from owning a firearm. The ban wasn't enough, the editors write, but had someone close to him who knew he had the rifle sought an order under the new law, the rule, or the rifle rather, might have been taken away from him. Now, as the Minnesota Governor's Caucus pointed out on Twitter, this is completely inaccurate. As the editors noted, the perpetrator in this crime was a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Police do not need, this is what the paper did not point out, police do not need a red flag confiscation order in order to take his firearms. He is illegally in possession of them. All police had to do was get a call or become aware, make contact, determine that he was a prohibited person, take his firearms, and arrest him. The uh, Gun Owners Caucus went on to say the editorial is going to make the public believe that this couldn't happen. Until this law was passed, and people like this perpetrator could have simply kept his guns before this law, which is completely false. Yeah, unfortunately, this is not the uh, only bit of uh, misinformation here. The Star Tribune also uh, talks about unnamed studies, they say, repeated studies uh, that show the effectiveness of red flag laws. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not aware of too many studies on red flag laws to begin with, but the one that uh, is talked about the most is a study that uh, looked at what happened to the suicide rates in Indiana and Connecticut after those states instituted their red flag laws. Those are the first two states to have red flag laws across the country. And what they found was that in Indiana, there was a slight depreciation in overall suicides. Um, In Connecticut, on the other hand, there was actually an increase in overall suicides. Gun-involved suicides declined, but that was offset by suicides in which a firearm wasn't used. Bottom line for the uh, researchers who conducted this study uh, was that for every uh, 10 to 20 red flag orders that were issued, uh, one suicide was prevented. Now, they don't have any actual numbers on that. That's just based on extrapolations. And, uh, you know, well, let's take a look at what might have happened, right? We'll uh, come up with these, you know, theoretical states and, uh, you know, model the data that way. But at best, At best, you would be looking at a 10% reduction uh, in the number of uh, suicides. And again, that is a best-case scenario. Now, 
in order for that to be the case, nine out of ten individuals who were red flagged apparently did not pose a threat to themselves or others. And if that's the case, then why do they have their firearms taken from them? Is there a way to address dangerousness um, that actually involves going after the dangerous individual rather than just any firearms that they might lawfully own? The editors of the Star Tribune write that this much-needed new state statute allows family members, housemates, partners, and law enforcement to petition a judge to temporarily remove guns from someone that they fear is a danger to themselves or others. An emergency extreme risk protection order, which expires after 14 days, can be issued without a hearing if it's signed by a judge. So if you're the subject of these petitions on an emergency basis, you don't even know that one's been filed. You're certainly not allowed to be a part of that initial hearing. Uh, Another type of extreme risk protection order can last up to a year if it's ordered by a judge following a full evidentiary hearing. The next step, the paper writes, for Minnesotans, or for Minnesota rather, should be a robust effort to inform the public about the law and how it can be used. The state, law enforcement, and mental health groups should help spread the word that Minnesota has joined 19 other states that have some form of red flag provisions to remove guns from those who shouldn't have them. Yeah, um, the paper didn't point out that these laws are being challenged around the country. In fact, there's a request for a preliminary injunction against Maryland's red flag law, uh, part of a lawsuit brought by the Second Amendment Foundation, an individual plaintiff who was falsely flagged by a government official that he had been beefing with for years, been going back and forth and bickering. All of a sudden, he's subject to a red flag order. Um, eventually, that government official pulled the petition, uh, but not until after this individual had been subject to a, a mental health screening. Uh, and uh, have been subject to that emergency hearing. Um, The due process concerns, or the lack thereof, uh, in red flag laws are real. And there is not really any um, longstanding national tradition of these types of statutes. In that Maryland case, the latest filing is a response to the state's request to dismiss the lawsuit. Uh, And in that filing, the attorney, uh, Edward Palzik, representing the plaintiffs, lays out the problems with uh, the red flag law from a Second Amendment perspective. Um, He says that uh, the Attorney General Anthony Brown in Maryland offered several irrelevant analogies comparing red flag law respondents to, quote, intoxicated people, drug addicts, and minors, classes of individuals who were historically subject to firearms regulations. But as the attorney points out, the red flag law in Maryland doesn't define who might be considered dangerous and get swept up into the uh, law's, quote, boundless net. The red flag law he writes without guiding criteria subjects anyone considered dangerous by an ex parte petitioner to the burden of an extreme risk protection order. So you don't have to be dangerous. You just have to be called dangerous by a petitioner. Um, That is, again, far beyond Uh, Even the, and I would say that the uh, classes of individuals that uh, Anthony Brown says historically have been denied firearms, intoxicated people, drug addicts, and minors, uh, you know, again, I I suppose he didn't go with Catholics uh, and slaves, which were also, again, uh, part of those classes of individuals who were denied their Second Amendment rights in the past. But I would note, for instance, with intoxicated people. And there's an open question, by the way, as to whether or not unlawful users of drugs lose access to their Second Amendment rights. But it's pretty uh, apparent that you can have beer in your refrigerator 
you can have booze on your bar and still be allowed to possess a firearm, right? You might not be able to carry a firearm while you are intoxicated, but simply possessing alcohol doesn't bar you from possessing a firearm. Anyway, um, one of the other uh, analogies or one of the other uh, arguments that the Attorney General in Maryland used to try to defend the state's red flag law is claiming that individuals who are subject to these interim uh, extremist protection orders pose a grave danger to others, that their possession of firearms imperils others in the community. As Paul Zick writes, that is a bizarre argument, considering this very action involves a man who was wrongly subjected to a red flag order and vindicated when the uh, defendant, in this case, retreated from the false allegation in lieu of further perjury. Uh, finally, Anthony Brown defending red, uh, Maryland's red flag law by uh, saying that technological factors um, appeared only recently, claiming that only a, quote, small fraction of spousal homicides were committed with a firearm in colonial times, something that uh, Paulzik says is absurd. Firearms, he says, not a new technology, were prevalent in colonial times, were just as available to domestic abusers as in modern times. You also, even if you want to take that, uh, even if you want to, you know, just uh, agree for the sake of argument, that Brown is right, that, uh, well, only a very small fraction of spousal homicides were committed with a fireman in colonial times. Was there any sort of 18th century red flag law dealing with the possession of knives or cudgels or other instruments that might have been used more commonly in those types of homicides? And the answer is no, that there was not. Again, these types of red flag laws are modern creations. Uh, they're not mental health bills either. You will not find the word mental health in most red flag laws because they're not about mental health. They are a gun control bill designed uh, to appear to uh, be about mental health, right? Uh, in fact, you'll even have lawmakers say this is about mental health, even though that phrase does not appear in the red flag legislation. One of the other problems with this approach to supposedly dangerous people, right? Let's just get rid of one object that they might lawfully own is that, again, you're not dealing with the dangerous people. You're dealing with one item that they might use. This is a headline from Minnesota just a couple of weeks ago. Deadly attacks draw attention to inadequacies in Minnesota's mental health system. This is from the Daily Item. It's published, uh, actually, I guess this was from the uh, Star Tribune. So the same newspaper. Same newspaper that was praising the red flag. Well, I guess it was picked up by the uh, Daily Item. Uh, this was a story that ran on Christmas Eve. And just look at the uh, beginning of this story. Two deadly attacks in the past month have put a spotlight on Minnesota's system for those with serious mental illness, where the common refrain from those involved with the work is that there is not enough, not enough workers, not enough early intervention, not enough treatment facility or group home beds, not enough services after someone leaves treatment. Doug McGuire, who coordinates the Hennepin County Commitment Defense Project, where attorneys represent people facing potential court-ordered treatment, says there is just a real dire shortage of what is needed to help this portion of the population. The first killing occurred the day before Thanksgiving, when police say a man with a lengthy criminal and mental health um, uh, uh, history stabbed a man to death at an Adena bus stop. Two weeks later, the Loring Park neighborhood was rocked after another man impaled a grocery store clerk with a golf club, according to charges in the case. Both of the suspects have been civilly committed to involuntary commitment within the past few years after they were found to be at risk of harm due to their mental illness. And yet, they were released back out on the street. Now, red flag laws wouldn't have touched these individuals, right? They're already lawfully prohibited from owning a firearm because of their involuntary commitments. So they didn't use a gun. In one case, they used a golf club. In another case, they used a knife. 
And in either case, would a red flag law have done anything, anything to address the dangerousness of these individuals? Because red flag laws aren't about dangerous individuals. They're about individuals who might possess firearms. And that's it. Now, again, if we want to deal with dangerous individuals, Star Tribune has already told us what the problem is, right? Not enough workers, not enough early intervention, not enough treatment facility or group home beds, not enough services for someone after they leave treatment. And what does a red flag law do to fix those problems? Nothing at all. In fact, it encourages these problems to persist because now lawmakers can say, look, I did something, right? We did something to address this problem of dangerous people doing dangerous things. We passed a red flag law that may, may reduce suicides by 5 to 10%, but will allow dangerous individuals who have previously been involuntarily committed to remain free to do dangerous things to other people, including impale them with a golf club. Not only is the red flag law in Minnesota and 19 other states an affront to our civil liberties, it takes us away from addressing a real crisis that we have in almost every state of the union. A shortage of mental health workers, a shortage of inpatient beds for those in crisis, and even a shortage of counselors who can help people stay out of a crisis situation. Now, I will admit, addressing that problem it's more complicated than passing a piece of legislation and calling the problem solved. But that doesn't absolve lawmakers of their responsibility to not just do something, but to do the right thing, to offer substantial improvement when there is a broken system. And in Minnesota, the mental health system is broken, and the state's new red flag law does nothing to fix it. Now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a headline out of Baltimore, Maryland. How often do kids get released from juvenile services in Baltimore? The answer, according to WMAR News, is way too much. Um, This was a subject of debate at a recent town hall in Baltimore. Juvenile crime, according to the city, juvenile crime has not increased. Uh, Some categories of juvenile crime, like carjackings may have, but juvenile crime overall, they say, is basically flat, something that a lot of Baltimore residents don't buy. And they say that even if the number of juvenile offenses is roughly the same as it was a couple of years ago, it seems like those offenses are becoming more serious. Well, WMAR actually found that from 2021 to 2023, the number of juvenile complaints actually more than doubled in Baltimore, but the percentage of juveniles who were detained went down. In 2021, 24% of all juvenile complaints led to detention. In 2023, it was just 13%. And the average length of stay in a juvenile detention facility also declined from 23 days down to 16 days. WMAR asked Catherine Rosenblatt, head of the juvenile division in the state's attorney's office, what's going on? She said, well, I can tell you from anecdotal experience, it's pretty difficult to actually get a kid held at the Baltimore County Juvenile Correctional Facility, pending their adjudication, it's much more common to have the kid released back to family home or guardian while on some form of electronic monitoring. And again, we know how well that works, right? That was yesterday's deal of the day. 17-year-old in California on electronic monitoring, accused of robbing a 12-year-old at a, uh, I think it was a BART station, right? We also had a, uh, a reserve report just a couple of days ago Somebody on electronic monitoring who is accused of taking part in a shooting 
So we know that electronic monitoring is not a um, real solution to keeping tabs on prolific offenders. WMAR also asked Rosenblatt, is the problem that there are more juveniles committing crimes or is it that there are more juveniles who aren't being held accountable for their crimes? And she said, I honestly don't think it's just one. She said, I think it's quite possible it's both. I think we're going to look back years and decades from now and we're going to see a big shift, not just as a result of the changes in law, but I think we're going to see the play out of COVID, the shutdown of schools and the impact that that had. I think we might be seeing some of that now, she said. I also don't think we can say any of that definitively, but I do think, she said, I mean, with the fact that our numbers practically doubled in a year, we are seeing something very new and is very troubling. Now, last year, uh, Maryland lawmakers passed the Juvenile Justice Reform Act, which may very well have made things even worse, right? Um, According to WMAR, there seems to be an appetite for changes to the Juvenile Justice Reform Act. The uh, legislative session kicks off tomorrow in uh, Annapolis, Maryland. We'll see what kind of changes are offered and if they actually improve things. But, you know, this is something that we've been talking about for months because it's not just Baltimore that's seen this increase in juvenile crime. Even as violent crime rates declined across much of the country, homicide rates may have fallen at a record pace in 2023. Um, There are some troubling signs that youthful offenders are committing very serious crimes, and in many cases, again, are are getting away with this, are quickly released to the streets with few or no consequences whatsoever, go on to commit further offenses, and it's this rinse and repeat cycle that sadly likely won't stop when these juveniles age out of the juvenile justice system and reach the age of majority. That's when they become adult offenders. If you don't get a handle on crime early, You're going to be dealing with the repercussions for decades. Today's Armed Citizen story from, well, gun-controlled Oakland, California, where a jewelry store store owner opened fire on armed robbers, other merchants in the city, requesting an emergency meeting with police because crime is out of control. Don't tell Gavin Newsom, you know, who says that California is awesome, so great because of our wonderful gun laws. It was just after 10 o'clock Monday morning. Employees of uh, MSM Jewelry were walking into the store, getting ready to uh, uh, start their day at work. Two suspects then come in, guns drawn. The owner of the store said he shot at the suspects. They fired back multiple times. Nobody in the store was hurt, thankfully. The owner said he might have hit one of the suspects. According to uh, CBS in uh, the Bay Area, it's the latest in a string of violent robberies in the Fruitvale District of Oakland. Oakland City Councilman Noel Gallo says it's gotten so bad that Local business owners are calling for an emergency meeting with city officials, he said, to express their concern. He said, but we're working with the police captain for the area. We did assign ongoing officers on a daily basis. We do have ambassadors in the violence prevention program, which is great. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I do believe that there is good work being done with community violence interruption programs that don't involve restricting the rights of law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms. In fact, I am all in favor of uh, giving money to those programs that have a track record of success. But unfortunately, that's a very small piece of the puzzle in California, right? From Sacramento to uh, various localities, the attitude seems to be, well, if we stop people from lawfully possessing or carrying a gun, there'll be some sort of you know trickle-down effect when it comes to violent criminals. That does not appear to be the case in California. Certainly not the case in Oakland. 
Uh, and again, Gallo's suggestion is, well, let's just put more police there. That's great. Again, I don't have any issue with that. But A, is Oakland still struggling to attract police officers? Because we do have a police officer shortfall in a lot of jurisdictions. So that won't be the answer. And even if you had a fully staffed police department, listen, you're not going to have staffing levels to the point that every business owner has their own private bodyguard, right? That every store has a uniformed officer in front to protect it from being the victim or being victimized by armed robbers. Uh, in fact, Gallo doesn't even know that he's going to be able to get these increased patrols. The CBS in the Bay Area says it's unclear how much support Gallo has from his fellow council members in the mayor's office, but he said he plans to talk to them all this week. Okay, great. But while you're talking with them, maybe make a call to uh, Gavin Newsom, Attorney General Rob Bonta, and the state representative and state senators uh, for your district, Councilman Gallo, and urge them to rescind these laws that make it impossible for responsible individuals, for business owners who are just trying to get through the day, to protect themselves, their employees, and their patrons from the criminals that California's gun control laws aren't stopping. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place at the right time, willing able to do the right thing, also in uh, California, where a hiker spotted a woman who had been trapped inside of her truck for four nights after she drove off a cliff, apparently while trying to avoid hitting a deer. This is the second case we've seen like this in the past couple of weeks, right? There was also that story out of Indiana where a guy had gone off the road, ended up under a bridge, and was stuck there for, I think it was six days? Uh, this is unbelievable. So this was in the uh, Angeles National Forest, most recent uh, example. Uh, uh, the woman told rescuers she was, again, trying to avoid hitting a deer on Wednesday night when her pickup truck plunged off the side of Mount Baldy Road and down an embankment. She wasn't found until Sunday afternoon. After spending several days in frigid temperatures, she was airlifted to a hospital. Last report in unknown condition, but rescuers did say she was able to speak. She was verbal when uh, she was found. Engine Captain uh, Matt Broussard of the U.S. Forest Service telling NBC Los Angeles it's been extremely cold and wet, as we're all aware. Uh, she's lucky that somebody was going for a hike and found her. He said the accident itself very common on these mountain roads. You drive too fast for your current conditions. You're not familiar with the roadway. He said, but her surviving, and not only just the accident, but also the elements, it is a New Year's miracle. It really is. I mean, talk about being in the right place at the right time and willing and able to do the right thing. And listen, just take it from me as somebody who is, uh, I think in the 11 years since I moved to Central Virginia, I think I've hit three, maybe four deer. It, it's, it's, it, I don't want to say it's a regular occurrence. I don't go out of my way, certainly. In fact, I try not to. Um, but if you're barreling down the road at you know 55 miles an hour and a deer jumps out in front of you, you're going to possibly do way more damage to yourself by swerving and trying to avoid that deer rather than just hitting it and then pulling over. Um, I can tell you this from personal experience. I have had head-on collisions. I've had deer actually run into the side of my car. Deer are not the brightest creatures out there. Um, but it is not a good idea to try to swerve and avoid because then that means you lose control of your vehicle and you can end up much more seriously injured or, in this case, um, stuck where nobody can find you for several days. Thankfully, again, that hiker did spot the woman and her uh, pickup truck, and hopefully she is going to recover from her uh, days there trapped in her vehicle. 
And that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. And I'm looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow when the weather should be much more cooperative to have a guest join us on the program. In the meantime, don't forget to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day. We're keeping you up to date on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information. We've got a lot of legislatures going back into session, not just Maryland, but Tennessee's underway, Iowa's underway. We've got news from both of those states, Florida, California. There is a, a lot uh, to cover in state legislatures right now with good bills being introduced, bad bills starting to gain some traction as well. But we got you covered again at BarryAndArms.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.